Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, February 4th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. Our first story, what is ahead for STEM education in 2022? Iowa education leaders share their programs and plans for advancing STEM learning this year. By Sarah Bogards. As every job increasingly touches technology and other STEM areas, business and education leaders say 2022 will be all about continuing the mission to create more access and opportunity to education in STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and math. There is work to be done to continue integrating the broad set of STEM skills both in and outside of the the classroom, they say. Pat Barnes, Senior Global Program Officer of STEM Education and Equity at Deer & Company, said it is difficult to find workers with the required, quote, deep technical knowledge, end quote, due to both a limited supply of graduates and increased competition for workers. At Mid-American Energy Company, Catherine Kuhnert, Vice President of Economic Connections and Integration, said the utility company faces similar workforce issues, citing the top challenge of finding workers who want to both live and work in rural areas. You really have to provide them with opportunities, potentially in addition to their jobs, Kuhnert said. They're much more interested in having the value-added proposition provided to them as well, she said. She said recruiting efforts in rural Iowa are established, but there are some instances where it's still in its infancy. For MidAmerican, those measures are doing outreach to schools and families to share available career opportunities in STEM fields, regardless of whether a student plans to obtain a four-year degree. When you partner and you marry up the education and the STEM aspects to the business, and let them know that there are opportunities right there in their own backyard, and what that means and what they can do for a career, that's what I think we have to continue to work on, connecting those opportunities with students and the educators, Kuhnert said. Barnes said ensuring equal access to Iowa's STEM education resources for all students is Iowa's, quote, biggest opportunity for improvement in the near future. The Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council, of which Barnes and Kuhnert are members, released recommendations from its Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Work Group in April 2021. He said the group is working to implement the recommendations within the Council's programming, and they presented at the Council's annual meeting in January. Compared with 10 years ago, awareness and support of STEM education in Iowa has increased significantly, with help from the collaborations between industry, nonprofits, and government, Barnes said. But he said, quote, if we're really serious about moving the needle and supporting and increasing the talent pipeline, end quote, companies need to consider both short and long-term investments in STEM efforts. Pi 515 founder and executive director Nancy Muratsky is focusing on long-term plans this year because she said to be ready to meet the job demands of the 2030s, preparation must start in 2022. The Pi 515 program offers underserved youths mentorship and teaching in computer science and related fields. 
At the end of 2020, there were 1.4 million open computer science jobs nationwide and only 400,000 graduates available to fill them, according to an analysis from DAX, a software development and technology consulting service provider. Projections from Corn Ferry, a global organizational consulting firm, estimate that by 2030 there will be 4.3 million global job openings in the technology, media, and telecommunication fields, and 7.9 million open jobs in the manufacturing sector. DAX also reports that a sustained shortage of software developers could result in an annual loss of $162 billion for the U.S. in unrealized output. Maratzi said Iowa needs to look at this kind of data for the state because it will, quote, really shape the direction of what we're going to do, end quote. Even though the workforce is adaptable, she said STEM curricula and strategies have to be devised and planned in advance with support from sustained intentional efforts. STEM education is a process. It is a really long process, Maratzi said. As the new year gets started, the business record asked Marazzi and other STEM education leaders about their priorities for 2022. STEM Best HD, Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council. With a $700,000 special appropriation from the legislature granted last year, the Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council created the STEM Best HD for high demand program. It is an expansion of STEM Best, which provides up to $25,000 in grants for schools and businesses to partner and create curricula or projects that integrate STEM workforce skills. The new HD program has the same goal of the original program, but will target the following industries identified as experiencing an increased demand for workers. Computer science, information technology, health professions, and advanced manufacturing. STEM Best Program Director Tanya Hunt said that the HD program also differs in several other ways. It lowers the cost-sharing requirement for applicants and offers a potentially higher award amount. Applicants can receive grants of up to $40,000. School districts will also have a year and a half to use funds awarded through STEM Best HD whereas STEM Best grant recipients have about 10 months to use their funding. We award in February 2022, and then applicants are able to utilize those awards through August 2023, which to me is even better than the money, Hunt said. Having that time is going to afford really great opportunities for those that are awarded, she said. With every state agency, including the STEM Council, Working to address workforce shortages, Jeff Weld, executive director of the Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council, said STEM Best is a, quote, arrow in the quiver, end quote. But teachers are the center of the effort as they take on the additional role as workforce developers. This is a new hat for teachers to try and wear. And STEM Best is an answer to them when they say, how am I supposed to help promote career awareness, Weld said. Long-term, Weld said the hope is that one day STEM Best grants, quote, aren't needed because every teacher in every school, in every community in the state is already by nature incorporating career advancement 
career awareness in collaboration with local community employers into the school day, end quote. Since STEM Best started in 2014, 80 programs have been launched across the state. More than 40 proposals were submitted for the 2022 HD program, and awards will be announced in mid-February. Applications for 2022 STEM Best grants open on March 14th. K-12 Computer Science Course Requirements Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council and Iowa Department of Education Governor Kim Reynolds in 2020 proposed a path to require computer science curricula in Iowa's 327 school districts and 116 accredited private schools. The legislature passed the bill, and the initiative will hit its first checkpoint on July 1st when high schools must have a plan to start offering at least a half-unit computer science course in the 2022-23 school year. The law requires that the instruction be, quote, high quality, meaning it aligns with Iowa's computer science standards. Heather Doe, Communications Director for the Iowa Department of Education, wrote in an email that Iowa's computer science standards come from the Computer Science Teacher Association and were adopted by Iowa's Education Department in June 2018. Some high schools already meet the July requirement. According to the 2021 Condition of Education report, 10.1% of Iowa public high school students graduating in 2021 took a high-quality computer science course. Despite the definitions of high-quality computer science courses, Weld said those in the education community, from parents to teachers, are still unclear on what it means to have a high-quality course. I don't think it's well known what everybody means by high-quality computer science and what it means to say high-quality computer science teacher preparation, Weld said. There's a lot of variance across what's being taught and how it's being taught and by whom it's being taught because that high-quality definition is so nebulous, he said. Weld said this is one reason why the governor's computer science work group, which was active from December 2020 to June 2021, recommended forming an ongoing work group in its report to the legislature. Weld, who co-chaired the work group, said the main theme across its recommendations was, quote, aggregating good things we know are happening in pockets of the state and making sure everybody has access to them, end quote. The following are the top three recommendations from the work group's report, Building on Iowa's Vision for Computer Science Education. Create an ongoing computer science work group. This group would oversee the delivery of quality professional development for computer science teachers and curate resources for educators as they create computer science curricula. Making a computer science endorsement a, quote, critical and affordable credential, end quote, for secondary teachers was also recommended. Bridge any computer science gaps in schools and communities. The work group recommended expanding computer science education to underserved students by training all kindergarten through eighth grade teachers to integrate the subject in their classrooms and by preparing technology teachers and specialists working in schools to teach computer science courses. Put a work-based learning coordinator in each school district. 
The addition of this role would expand access to work-based learning options and, quote, include how computer science is redefining virtually all occupations, end quote. According to the report, other recommendations are creating a playbook that facilitates collaboration between schools and businesses and providing additional financial incentives for employers to participate in work-based learning. The work group's recommendations are currently under review by the Iowa Department of Education, which will submit a computer science plan to the legislature by July 1st. Preparing Youth for the Future of Work, PI 515. The theme for PI 515 in 2022 is 2030, Preparing Youth for the Future of Work. Because Marazzi said Generation Z is going to shape the digital economy and the work to prepare them needs to start now. Marazzi plans to put on several roundtables in 2022 to elevate the conversation about the needs for 2030 in both the technology and business communities. With an eye on the long term, Marazzi said Pi 515 is also shifting its focus to create more, quote, intentional partnerships with new businesses and communities. Instead of local IT professionals coming to lead the Pi 515 course at schools, Marazzi has reversed the model so students are being taught in the company's offices. I want companies to let these kids go into their spaces, she said. Pi 515 has tested this new model with American Equity, and Principal Financial is the business partner for the current course, which runs through March. Marazzi said meeting the goal of adding five to ten more business partners this year would allow Pi 515 to offer the course to more students and in more areas of the state like Waterloo and Cedar Rapids. At the time of publication, one new company had agreed to partner with Pi 515. She said the new model has received, quote, tremendous response from students and has helped with their engagement in the course. A new high school cohort is expected to start in September. Pi 515 is also hosting its second Girls Entrepreneurial Summit on April 28th, where high school students will present the business ideas they've developed in the weeks before. They also participate in a pitch competition, where the winner receives a cash prize courtesy of John Papa John. Priority, Delta 5 Code School. Cybersecurity Program, New BOCO. The New Bohemian Innovation Collaborative, or New BOCO, in Cedar Rapids, launched its Delta 5 Code School in 2017 with a focus on lowering the barrier of entry to software development by providing, quote, boot camp style courses for adults looking to change careers. In 20 weeks, new BOCO executive director Aaron Horn said Delta 5 could take someone, quote, from knowing potentially nothing to being a junior-level full-stack developer, end quote. Since then, Delta 5 has introduced other course tracks, digital marketing in 2019 and help desk and administration in 2020. A cybersecurity program is the most recent edition announced in fall 2021. As with the other courses, the motivation was to make an industry facing a high demand for workers accessible to anyone. Horn and others from Nuboco spoke with local companies about the roles and skills they need 
and he said they have built the Delta Five curriculum based on that feedback. The first cohort of the 10-week cybersecurity program starts February 7th, and instructor Dan Turi said after graduation, students could take on jobs like a junior cybersecurity analyst or a help desk or policy review role. It's going to be 10 weeks of education that really that simulates what somebody in an entry-level security role would do, Turi said. In order to stay on top of the ever-evolving challenges in cybersecurity, the curriculum will cover topics like artificial intelligence and cryptography and end with students responding to a 72-hour simulated cyber attack. The way cyber risks touch every IT position makes awareness and literacy of cybersecurity risks a top need in STEM education, Turi said. He said the need for graduates to have fundamental cybersecurity knowledge is becoming as important as them having financial literacy. Until we get to a point where we really have those conversations regularly, it's hard to go beyond, he said. He thinks it's possible Delta 5's cybersecurity program could help create this awareness through, quote, upskilling or training current IT professionals in emerging topics and digital skills that prepare them for roles as they evolve. A second iteration of the course is scheduled to begin September 19th. The next story, JT Logistics Builds on Culture Amid covid Co-owner Jamie Cord seeks to replicate legacy of Richard Jacobson by Joe Gardiaz. Two years ago, Jamie Cord and his partners were at a figurative crossroads in the growth of their company. It was February 2020, and Cord, then president of MYA Logistics, had just presented an expansion opportunity to his business partners, one that would require going out on a limb to lease some additional buildings. Because his partners were nearing retirement, they were reluctant to take on that level of risk, and they suggested the company just focus on its existing profitable customer base rather than pursue expansion. My growth plan is much different than that, Cord recalled, telling his partners. Would you guys have any interest in divesting? To his surprise, the answer was yes. And in May 2020, Cord relaunched the company as JT Logistics, named for the first initials of himself and the owners of the company, including co-worker and partner in the business, Troy Strawhecker. That was really kind of a pivotal moment for us because we got into more of a risk-reward situation where we were going after the opportunities that were in front of us, Cord said. Since then, the Des Moines-based third-party logistics, 3PL, company, has undertaken significant expansion during the pandemic, at a time when supply chain bottlenecks have encouraged many of its manufacturing customers to boost warehousing of critical parts and supplies. In less than two years, JT Logistics has more than tripled its operational footprint to more than 2.5 million square feet by acquiring seven additional warehouses and has increased its headcount to 140 employees. The company was recognized in 2021 on the Inc. 5000 list as one of the fastest-growing businesses in the country, with 82% revenue growth over the past three years. 
Notably, one of Cord and Partners' acquisitions was the former Jacobson Company's corporate headquarters in Des Moines, where Cord previously worked in the building with Richard Jacobson, the late founder of the Jacobson Companies. Now, as the leader of his own company working from Jacobson's former office, Cord aims to replicate Jacobson's successful business strategy, along with a culture and philanthropic approach based on his principles. The biggest reason why all the growth has happened is the culture, Cord said. I'm trying to replicate what Dick Jacobson did in some form or fashion. He knew everybody in the building, their name, their wife, their hobbies, what they did on the weekend. He cared about everybody. That's what I'm trying to do, build a culture of family and a vision that everybody can get behind. Similar to Jacobson's growth, JT Logistics has evolved to develop services for customers outside of warehousing. The first spinoff predates JT Logistics when MYA Logistics in 2018 started a transportation arm, which now has 18 tractors and 36 trailers. Within the past two years, JT Logistics has launched its own brokerage company, staffing firm, and industrial services company. So we've really evolved from just a little warehouse company into a full third-party logistics solution, Cord said. While it's now primarily a Midwest 3PL, with warehouses in Greater Des Moines, Ames, Grinnell, and Iowa City, we're about to take the show on the road, Cord said. JT Logistics is now looking to open warehouses in Minneapolis and Omaha, as well as Reno, Nevada. But that's just the start. The company's five-year growth plan calls for expansion into 14 major cities, among them Phoenix, Houston, Dallas, Atlanta, Harrisburg, Chicago, Columbus, Indianapolis, Seattle, and Tacoma. We're going to become like the next Jacobson Companies, Cord said. When I left Jacobson, after it was acquired by XPO, they had about 35 million square feet over about 30 different states and 10,000-plus employees. My goal is to just do that again. And to be honest with you, the fun part is not the growth. It's the people you get to work with and the smiles and the people that are really proud of what they're doing. The ability to give back in a way that Jacobson gave back is also a big motivator for him, he said. I cannot wait until we have that ability to put up an athletic center or hospital. That's what drives me, to be able to help people. What do you see as the outlook for the supply chain in the next couple of years? I think things are going to stay this way or even get more constrained for the next 18 to 24 months. Especially with now this new strain potentially of COVID, I don't see anything really changing. I think more people are going to go to e-commerce and shop less outside of their doors. There will be more and more distribution centers for small parcels, pick and pack direct-to-consumer type solutions. So I don't see the supply chain industry changing. It won't be going backwards. The good part about it is with a bigger footprint and more people, it's easier to work with the larger customers. Because if you're a bigger company producing great results, more people trust you to give you their business. What challenges are there for you and other 3PL companies? The challenges have been labor and pay rates, and a lot of the issues that the government has kind of, quote, helped us with, 
as far as unemployment assistance, made it challenging. Our pay rates have gone up almost 25% this year to be able to employ people in the same positions as a year ago or a year and a half ago. Now that's not a negative, it's just what it is. One of the challenges also is that with the growth of this industry, that capacity and in warehousing has become very hard to find new buildings. So for me to get a customer today and find the building tomorrow is a thing of the past. Now it's more like a strategic plan to occupy a facility that's almost finished being built, you know, or maybe even not even started. I've got customers right now saying that they want to warehouse, but they're willing to wait 12 months so that we can build them something. The other thing that's changed a lot is that a lot of companies used to try to do their own warehousing, and they've realized that with COVID, they don't have the space or the labor to warehouse their stuff because they need so much more and they're outsourcing all that supply chain solution. Core values and create amazing tokens. JT Logistics core values include respect, honesty, teamwork, communication, and safety. With the top value, a term that President and CEO Jamie Cord coined called, quote, create amazing. What that means is we purposefully and intentionally do things people don't expect, he said. We try to make a mark on customers so that they remember us and become ambassadors or disciples of our brand. Cord also developed a Create Amazing Token, a blue and white poker chip with the company logo on one side and the slogan on the flip side, as a cultural tool for motivational recognition. If I see somebody doing something that I'm going to remember, that they created amazing in my life, I give them that and I tell them what they did, Cord said. I tell them why, and I guarantee you because they think about it, they're going to do it again for somebody else. And it just kind of pays it, and it just kind of pays it forward, he said. People outside the organization have also gotten them. Cord once handed one out with praise for a convenience store employee who went out of her way to make fresh breakfast burritos for him after he had come to buy some for a board meeting and they had sold out. He also gives two tokens to each new employee when they join the company, one to give away and the other a free pass to say anything to the boss. If they ever have anything on their chest they want to talk about, they can come in and put that on my desk and say whatever they want with no ramifications. It's just an open-door policy to make them feel comfortable. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, February 4th, 2022 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. In this week's Closer Look column, Adrian Butler, Chief Information Officer, Casey's General Stores Incorporated, by Sarah Bogards. Adrian Butler's career has always centered on technology and using it creatively to build value. After growing up on a farm in Louisiana, Butler said that Casey's customers reflect himself and how he was raised, and that he saw an opportunity to have a positive effect on those company customers through technology as the company's first chief information officer. He came to Casey's in June 2020 from another CIO role at Dine Brands, the parent company of Applebee's and IHOP restaurants. 
While there, Butler worked with his future colleague, Casey's CEO and former president of IHOP, Darren Rebellas. Butler's first association with technology careers was after finishing his bachelor's degree when he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force. He worked for finance and insurance company American General after leaving the Air Force and then took his first officer role as vice president of international hotel group Accor Hotels. Butler's passion for education led him to a role as chief technology officer for a startup, helping universities offer online education for a year before he joined Target as vice president of technology services. As Casey's first CIO, share why the role was created and how you view it. If you think about all the organizations around the world, but certainly here in the United States, Technology has become a catalyst to drive value for guests, and then ultimately for team members, and ultimately for shareholders. At Casey's, we have five pillars of our strategy. Within each of those pillars, having a robust technology capability is essential in order to deliver what we aspire to be over time. At the heart of everything we do is the guest. And so when you start thinking about the types of capability we're looking to build and acquire, Certainly, we're a super guest-centric and guest-focused organization. But also, we're a very team-member-centered and team-member-focused organization. If you start thinking about the rationale for building, it is first and foremost to catapult and enable and support our three-year strategic plan. But even beyond that, we know that technology is going to play a role and continue to differentiate and really drive competitive advantage for Casey's into the future. What were the initiatives that defined your first year at Casey's? A big part of success in any of these types of IT and technology transformations is being hyper-focused on talent. I would say the first thing that I immerse myself in is the team both the technology teams, but also the broader teams that are stakeholders in the technology success here at Casey's. We have now transformed ourselves utilizing product management and using agile methodology as the approach to go to market. First and foremost is getting the way we deliver value, making sure we have the right talent in place to do that, both internally developing talent and continuing to elevate the teams that are here, but also out recruiting and acquiring talent. I would say that's the biggest part of what the first 19 months have borne out. Second has been continuing to lean into four major areas. One is around our stores and the capability in stores where we serve our guests every single day, making sure that there are the right services and tools in place for both our team members to support our guests, but also tools for guests directly through digital and e-commerce channels. Second would be a deeper focus on data and analytics, getting more robust insights about our guests to ensure that we are providing the services and the products that are important to them. Third is leaning into core systems, like our merchandising systems that are the tools we use to go out and acquire products and basically be able to then merchandise those in stores, as well as supply chain tools and technology to then ensure that the products we acquire are available to to guests and show up on our shelves across our footprint. What are some of the top ways Casey's is integrating technology? 
one of the things that we're learning that we're leaning into are guest enablement and guest-centric innovations and best-in-class type technologies. The example I'd give there is around our digital platforms. We launched our digital platforms back roughly around January 2020, right before the pandemic. We now have leaned into that, and that environment and those capabilities have grown and scaled quite nicely, where we have now tens of thousands of guests utilizing those in any given day. We certainly are utilizing our e-commerce and mobile and social capabilities to now interact and engage with guests through marketing channels, through social, and through these connection points, through our rewards and loyalty program to make sure that we're enticing or encouraging or inviting guests to interact with Casey's in a way, perhaps, that they have not historically. How has your experience as CIO at Dine Brands influenced your work at Casey's? I think a big part of it is around the evolution of a CIO. What does that role even mean these days? I'd say the role has evolved to having an enterprise view of all the opportunities, but also all the challenges and risks in the organization. A big part of my job is to illuminate opportunities through the use and deployment of technology. If we can identify where technology can play a role to solve a problem, make a process easier, and make our team members' lives easier, that's a great benefit to Casey's and a great use of technology. On the other end of that equation is how we then interact with our guests. Having worked in restaurants, certainly at Casey's, our three-legged stool is fuel, traditional convenience in grocery and general merchandise, as well as a food proposition. I think one of the great things that I value in the CIO role, and particularly in retail, is that you have a closed loop. You get to face a guest every single day. A guest gets to tell you what you got right and where there's an opportunity for you to improve every single day. For me, focusing in on technologies that allow that experience with our guests and that experience with our team member to be improved is the central essence of what I've learned throughout my entire career, is focus the energy of the innovation and focus the energy of the technology in a way that both drives value, but also solves a problem in a person's life. That sticks really well. How have the workforce challenges shown up on Casey's IT teams, and how have they worked to attract new hires? It's a great time to be in technology, probably the best time of any time in the history of technology. There are tons of opportunities through experience, tons of opportunities through various companies that exist for talent today. And it all has existed for a while, but I would say that there are so many options today that were perhaps not there or not as available. Now with COVID making the workforce more mobile by being able to work remotely or work anywhere, that has just introduced and opened up opportunities for a technologist to pursue different avenues that they perhaps have not historically. I'd say that has introduced both a challenge and an opportunity. The challenge of that is that colleges are not producing technologists at the rate of the demand. And we're not the only company out in the country or in this market that are hiring. So there's lots of demand, even in this local market. The things that I hyper-focus on relative to talent are three things. First and foremost, focusing on ensuring that we're retaining, developing, 
coaching, mentoring, and creating opportunities for our existing team to want to be at Casey's is essential. Number two is creating the ability for those team members to go out and have really compelling stories around why Casey's, why should you come here? What are you guys working on? Is the technology current? The things we're working on are current technologies that would actually benefit a person in their career journey from my vantage point. We've also looked at how we then create onboarding opportunities through internships. We've scaled our internship program here at Casey's over the last 18 months, where we've increased it from two or three interns to 21 in 2021. What is your view on diversity in hiring and focusing on underrepresented groups? It's really important to me to lean in and have both gender diversity represented, diversity of experience, diversity of location, because I think that brings out the best in all of us. Certainly then, racial diversity as a component of that as well. We certainly lean in on our recruiting more broadly than we have historically and really are seeing a much more diverse workforce. Casey's is doing well, so we're going to look at our performance in the broader market, look at our performance relative to some of the recognition we're receiving. All those things are just indicators around the great positive change and the evolution that's taking place here that I then think then attracts people. So therefore, we're out certainly looking for the best talent possible wherever it might sit. We're certainly leaning into and saying that diversity, equity, inclusion, it's important to us, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because we think it actually helps us to get the better outcomes. One piece I'd add is now the fact that we can have folks who can work remotely. We've also begun to explore and lean into what does remote work even look like in this context. So that's an opportunity as well. What have you found as a leader to be important components to recruiting and retaining a team of technology professionals? I would say flexibility and all aspects of that. Flexibility of work schedule. Flexibility in the types of things that I work on. Flexibility in developing skills that may not be necessarily germane to my specific job, but I want to grow and scale myself. That is certainly something that we're seeing. I'd say it's become a much more competitive workforce relative to broad compensation, and that's not always just base salary. That is, how are you investing in me from a development perspective? That is, what are the types of experiences I can get? How do I now interact and actually have my work show up in a way that I can actually be proud of externally? All those things are the other things that we're beginning to see a whole lot more of. I think the other part is creating community. One of the things that's important for me and my role relative to the workforce, for those of us that sit here in Des Moines, but also some of our colleagues that don't sit in Des Moines, is making sure we create an environment and a culture that is rich and robust that is really collegial and respectful, but also allows us to kind of get to know each other and know each other well. Adrian Butler at a glance, hometown, Bosco, Louisiana. Family, wife, Jolanda, three children, Adrian, 22, Ariana, 20, and Allie, 12. Education, bachelor's degree in computer science from Grambling State University, MBA from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and a doctoral degree in management from the University of Maryland. 
age 52, contact adrian.butler at caseys.com. From the Business Records Insider Notebook, USL Official Soccer Attracts Young People to Metro Areas by Kathy A. Bolton. Much fanfare occurred last week around the announcement that a franchise agreement had been signed to bring professional soccer to the greater Des Moines area. Being able to boast that Des Moines has a professional soccer team will be a great asset for the city. Even better, though, will be professional soccer's ability to attract millennials and Gen Zers into becoming permanent Des Moines area residents, Justin Papadakis, chief operating officer for the United Soccer League, told the business record. One of the things that we are seeing all over the country is that young men and young women are selecting where they want to live based on the professional sports an area has, Papadakis said. Increasingly at the top of the list for them is soccer, he said. The new soccer club will be Des Moines' fourth professional sports team. Also in Des Moines are the Iowa Cubs, a AAA affiliate of the Chicago Cubs baseball team. The Iowa Wild, an American Hockey League affiliate of the National Hockey League's Minnesota Wild. And the Iowa Wolves, a minor league NBA team affiliated with the Minnesota Timberwolves. If more people between the ages of 25 and 45 put down roots in the Des Moines area, companies will follow them, Papadakis said. Companies that want to attract and retain workers are going to want to be in cities that have activities and sports teams that improve the quality of life. Des Moines already has a great corporate base. It's just going to get better, he said. Last week, Kyle Krauss and USL representatives announced that they had signed an agreement to bring a professional soccer team to Des Moines. The new team, which doesn't yet have a name, is slated to play its first match in spring 2024 in a new outdoor stadium planned at 200 Southwest 16th Street, a 43-acre site that in 1983 was placed on the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Superfund list. Cleanup of the site is complete. Site preparation work is expected to begin this spring, and a groundbreaking for Pro-Iowa Stadium is expected to take place in the fall. The $75 million multi-use stadium, which has been in the planning stages for more than two years, will include 6,300 seats and 12 suites. An $8.7 million global plaza, which will be large enough to host cultural and community events, is planned around the stadium. Backers of the stadium believe it will help the Des Moines area continue to grow. Population estimates released last May by the U.S. Census Bureau showed that the Des Moines-West Des Moines Metropolitan Statistical Area grew to 707,915 residents in 2020, up 16.7% from 2010. Between 2019 and 2020, the Des Moines area grew 1.1%. The Des Moines area by percentage grew faster than any other Midwest city, including Omaha, Kansas City, Minneapolis, and Chicago, both year over year and over 10 years, the census data showed. Also, Des Moines' immigrant population was among the fastest growing in the United States, according to a report released by an Arkansas-based think tank. 
If you look at the stadium from a business and economic development standpoint, a couple things happen, said Kraus, who has owned the Des Moines Menace for 24 years and will be the owner of the new USL Championship men's soccer team. The new team and stadium, quote, create a workforce attraction and retention piece by attracting a young, diverse workforce that either want to stay in central Iowa or move here, he said. The stadium will also drive economic activity around the stadium, Kraus said. As the stadium is being built, development of a training facility will begin on the southern portion of the site, Kraus said. The team, quote, is going to need a place to train. They are not going to train inside the stadium, end quote. In addition, a hotel, apartments, and other entertainment venues will be developed around the stadium, said Kraus. Chairman and CEO of Kraus Group, the parent company of come-and-go convenience stores. In a report issued last year to a state board, the project's backers estimated the stadium would have a $356.4 million economic impact to the Des Moines area over a 20-year period. The plaza is expected to have an economic impact of $30.2 million over 20 years. We really like the idea that this stadium is going to be built on a piece of land that has been underutilized for such a long time, Papadakis said. This part of the downtown area is going to be radically transformed, not only because of the stadium, but all the things the stadium brings with it. In the On Leadership column, What Does Social Responsibility Have to Do with Your Business? by Susanna DeBaca, President and Group Publisher, Business Publications Corp. Here's a walk down memory lane for you. Can you recall when your company started recycling? Or when you first started hearing about your company's inclusion or environmental practices? These questions, which are part of the larger concepts of Corporate Social Responsibility, CSR, and Environmental, Social, and Governance, governance, ESG, are still relatively recent, but they increasingly matter to your business. Whether you are the leader or director of a company, large or small, public or private, local, national, or global, CSR and ESG are concepts to take seriously. That was not always the case. Back in the 90s, when I was working on Wall Street, many investors openly scoffed at the idea of sustainability and corporate responsibility. I distinctly remember a client laughing out loud when I suggested a socially responsible investment option, saying, why would I give up returns to save the planet? But times have changed. Today, a company might lose investors, customers, or workforce if they cannot demonstrate their commitment to a sustainable footprint, social responsibility, or sound governance. The investor community is increasingly examining the relationship between business and sustainability, and consumers and employees are demanding that companies act responsibly, asking questions about everything from your carbon footprint, to your DEI strategy, to your charitable giving. The pandemic has amplified these conversations, creating urgency for organizations to address how they operate, manage risk, and evolve culture. What are CSR and ESG? 
The terms CSR and ESG are emerging more and more frequently in boardrooms and on investor calls. A recent Forbes article, Three Reasons Why CSR and ESG Matter to Businesses, explains, quote, While CSR holds businesses accountable for their social commitments in a qualitative manner, ESG helps measure or quantify such social efforts, end quote. CSR is a way of doing business in ways that contribute to the betterment of society. Within ESG, environmental issues include biodiversity, emissions, natural resources, and the environmental impact of your product portfolio. Social responsibility encompasses topics like health and safety, human rights and human capital management, and governance issues range from data privacy to business ethics, compliance, to board structure and composition, executive compensation, and shareholder rights. As a leader, you may ask if bettering society is really the responsibility of your company. If you are a fiduciary or responsible for your company's bottom line, it is your job to pay attention to your stakeholders and stakeholders are increasingly making decisions on how to fund or engage with your company based on how you choose to operate your business. The investor community has intensified its focus on ESG, and there is significant pressure to do business according to specific criteria. Public and privately held companies alike are facing increased questioning and examination from their own employees and customers who are calling for greater transparency about their practices. Are you intentionally creating CSR and ESG strategies? In a recent National Association of Corporate Directors survey, nearly 80% of directors reported that their board is focused on some aspect of ESG with 52% seeking ways to improve their own understanding of the topic. I recently attended an educational session of local board directors on this topic, and the majority had a plan for some but not all aspects of CSR and ESG, and the consensus was that comprehensive plans are essential. Today, companies that are adapting to changing socioeconomic and environmental conditions as well as improving their cultures, will be better positioned to take advantage of strategic opportunities and compete in an ever-changing marketplace. They will also undoubtedly fare better with employee and customer retention. In other words, addressing CSR and ESG is just good business. And now Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files, Feeding the Birds. The downy woodpecker outside our family room performs an elfin-like dance every morning before he eats. He lands on the redbud tree about 8 to 12 inches above a suet feeder and hops backwards until he's on the same level, where he picks seeds from the tallow. He and his mate are engaging creatures. And watching them and the dozen or so other species of neighborhood birds pull seeds from feeders that hang in nearby redbud trees has become part of our daily routine. Bird feeding starts as a hobby and turns into an addiction, warned Monty Freeman of Wild Birds Unlimited in West Des Moines where we purchased the feeders and return weekly for bird feed. I bought our first feeder the week before Christmas. 
It took several days, but soon we tufted tip mice, two kinds of finches, four species of woodpeckers, starlings, flickers, blue jays, and cardinals appearing regularly outside our family room. By New Year's Day, we had added five additional feeding stations, and we now have a virtual aviary with a snow shovel throw of our house. Fiona McSqueaker, our retired Scottish fold breeder cat, spends much of her day perched atop a stuffed chair that backs up to the window closest to the feeders. Her looming presence has no effect on the activity outside the window, which appears to ebb and flow on a daily schedule with activity beginning around 10 a.m. and peaking between noon and 1 p.m. We've had cats who would chatter at birds, but Fiona and Cooper, our 18-pound red tabby, are silent observers. This is not the first time we've fed birds. We did it once before during the 1980s when our children were young. Back then, we had a loose-feed, house-shaped contraption that sat atop a metal pole roughly 12 feet from our kitchen window. It worked well, and we added additional feeders the following year. That's when the trouble started. It seemed innocent enough at first. I remember looking out late one night and seeing a deer eating birdseed scattered on the ground below the feeder. How cute, I thought. I even took a photo of the deer, who was largely unfazed by the camera's flash. That should have told me something. It wasn't long before more deer came, some with fawns, a couple with antlers. By the time spring arrived, our feeder was the deer equivalent of a truck stop cafe, complete with bathroom activity throughout our backyard. As snow melted, the animals' hooves tore up the grass. With all the deer poop, my backyard resembled a cattle feedlot. After lingering, another lingering memory of those years is the acrobatic squirrels who overcame baffles I installed below the feeders by sometimes flinging themselves from nearby trees and hanging upside down to shake seeds out of the feeder. When I asked wild bird owner Scott Knox about squirrels, he said, I call squirrels worthy adversaries because they adapt and overcome many of our attempts to foil them. Some people take it personally, while others are amazed at what they are able to accomplish, he said. If squirrels get too bad, Knox suggested a special feed that contains peppers, which squirrels don't like, although, judging by my experience, neither do some birds. So far, our neighborhood squirrels have been a minor nuisance and have remained mostly on the ground, picking up seeds that fall from a tray or that Amy spreads for ground feeders, including juncos and morning doves. Speaking of which, one of my favorite memories this winter is the below zero morning when I saw a finch eating a seed from the feeder on our cat's warming pad just outside our deck door. The little guy was clearly more comfortable on that warm pad than he was standing in the snow. Another memorable event was the day a predator Cooper's hawk landed and cleared out a group of bickering starlings. The hawk has not returned, but everybody else has. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, February 4th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening. 
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. It may surprise you to know that the garbage that leaves your house will be preserved for centuries in a landfill. More than a dump, landfills are an engineered storage system. On the bottom, there's a thick plastic membrane and a layer of compacted clay to keep liquids from entering the groundwater. Above that, the fill area is divided into cells for each day's garbage. As trucks dump garbage into the cell, it's compacted to become as small as possible. At the end of the day, the cell is closed off with a layer of soil and perhaps another layer of plastic, making it water and airtight. Most garbage won't break down in this environment, though anaerobic bacteria will digest food and organic waste and produce methane, also known as natural gas, the same kind you burn in your stove. Because it's flammable, the methane has to be flared off, or it can be collected and sold for industrial use, or used to run electric generators at the landfill. America leads the world, by a wide margin, in garbage production, with more than 1,400 pounds per person per year. More than half of it ends up in landfills. And 65% of that is packaging. Cardboard, paper, plastic, bottles and cans, nearly all of which could have been recycled. On average, recycling costs about half as much as storing garbage in a landfill. So if you'd like to reduce your garbage footprint and your city's municipal waste cost, recycling is the way to go. I'm Scott Tinker, filling you with fun facts on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.